Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome in to the Jeff Andreas Show, and thank you so much for tuning in. It is Thursday, March the 12th. Have a pretty good show lined up for you here today. In about 10 minutes, I'll be joined by Alex Ballingall, who is a Ottawa-based reporter for the Toronto Star covering national politics. He's also a fellow Kamloopsian, so good to get him back on the air. I'll try to get a feel from him about what the COVID-19 situation is like in Ottawa and what things are looking like as he follows the political scene when it comes to what is now a pandemic. He wrote an article yesterday talking about the $100 billion fund that the uh, federal government announced. And around the 35-minute mark, I'll be speaking with with Assistant Professor of International Relations at the University of Victoria, Will Greaves. Uh, the first case of coronavirus was identified on the island yesterday, so I want to ask him a little bit about how they're feeling there and, and what kinds of precautions may be in place for a post-secondary institution uh, with those concerns now being brought to the forefront. But to begin today's show, I'm joined in studio by the Executive Director of the Kamloops Chamber of Commerce, Acacia Pangolin. And Acacia, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. So, we're going to not talk about coronavirus to start things off here. So, uh, tonight at the Sandman Signature Hotel, Kamloops Mayor Ken Christian will be delivering his State of the City Address starting at 7.30. So, uh, just first and foremost, just sort of on a general sense, why is something like this an important event for the Chamber to host? So, we have always had a great relationship working with the City of Kamloops, and we really wanted to provide an opportunity for the business community to hear directly from our Mayor um, about what sort of plans are in place for the upcoming year. And so this has been a long-standing event for the Chamber, but in the last year we really have grown to uh, uh, grown a lot of the excitement around the event, and I'm really happy to say that the event is completely sold out, which has never happened before. So the business community is really coming together to hear from our Mayor. Nice. So when you say it's sold out, how many people does that mean are, are you know, embarking on the hotel at, uh, at that for the event? There's about 140 okay. of the business community members out tonight. And for those who were unable to, you know, nab a ticket, that was obviously very coveted. Uh, you know, is there another way that people can go about viewing this? Absolutely. So uh, we actually approached the city of Kamloops to offer some sort of live stream of the presentation because we really wanted to have his message be accessible to Kamloopsians as a whole. Um, so if anyone didn't get a ticket and wants to hear what he has to say, uh, we'll be live streaming it from our Facebook page. So it's the Kamloops Chamber of Commerce, um, and there'll be the live feed that t happening tonight. Awesome. And, and did you say? how many years you guys have been doing this now? Uh, well, we've been doing it ever since I've been at the Chamber, and I started in 2015. So okay. um, I think they have done it before that when Peter Millibar was the mayor too. Mm -hmm. but, uh, it wasn't the event that it is now, which right. is really exciting. Which is great. It's good to see that it's building and more and more people are paying attention to what our uh, local politicians are having to say because they are the leaders in this community when it comes to, um, you know, the a lot of the work that gets done here. Um, you know, with, with you as the executive director of the Chamber, you know, when you attend these events and you listen to people like Mayor Ken Christian speak, you know, what, what are you really listening for? Is there any sort of specific message that you're, you know, maybe it's business oriented that you're sort of trying to find out how is this going to impact the business community moving forward? That's definitely the lens that I try and have when I'm listening to our politicians speak for sure. I think uh, specifically for Kamloops, I'm really trying to listen about how the community is growing and then um, what opportunities that might present for more Kamloops businesses. Um, 
and kind of what the plans are in place to help with the growth that's going to happen in our city because you know it is it is growing our university is growing and but we're still hearing from the business community how hard it is to attract and retain good employees right so mm-hmm. um I'm always listening through the lens of the needs of our members and that particular one is going to be of interest for me because I've been hearing that daily at yeah, this yeah. point. Yeah. Do you ever go into these events expecting to hear one thing and then have it kind of be a, a different message than you were expecting? Um, I haven't actually had that experience, to be honest. I Generally, when we meet with... Uh, politicians they're they're talking about mm-hmm. you know their plans that they're pretty transparent about right. so there's no big surprises that right. come out of these yeah i was i had ken on yesterday and we talked a little bit about you know kind of what was expected tomorrow evening or sorry this evening now it was tomorrow yesterday when i spoke to him um but yeah he was you know sort of saying like this being a bit of an odd one for him with you know the coronavirus being out there and the concerns that come around with that um you know he said he probably penned this speech you know a couple weeks ago maybe or something along those lines and he's almost been changing it daily so I'm wondering if you're going to be seeing that experience this time around where you, you know it might not be necessarily different from the business message that you were expecting but probably a bit of a different message overall I think so and I think that it's important for the messaging to be relevant right and uh, there is no question that a pandemic would have a severe impact on the mm-hmm. business community in Kamloops and so even even though that might not be the business presentation that maybe we're expecting. It's definitely the information about our community that we need to hear. Um, Can I ask a little bit about that now as well? I mean, uh, you Mm -hmm. know, just we've had the pandemic declared yesterday by the World Health Organization. Doesn't seem like it's really a huge issue right now for us in Kamloops and in the interior. But, you know, that could really change on a moment's notice. But, you know, what what is sort of the the, the chamber's role, I guess, in dealing with things like this? What, um, you know, is, is there messages that you have to put out to the small business community, say, if this does happen, then these are the steps that you should be taking? Absolutely. So we've been working with the BC Chamber of Commerce and the Canadian Chamber of Commerce around a toolkit for our businesses in the event that pandemic spreads here and the cases are more severe. Um, we also have been in communication with a lot of the other business and industry organizations in town about, you know, strategies with some of our more uh, larger events that we intend on hosting this spring. Um, And we're also communicating really closely with uh, senior city staff and IHA. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're really following the lead of the health authorities because they know best. Absolutely. So once they announce that it's time for, you know, everyone to be notified, then we have a toolkit for businesses that we'll send out so that people are prepared. But at the same note, I'm not going to start causing people to panic. I am definitely not a health official. So (laughs) once we hear from the right health authorities, then we'll start to act on that. Yeah. Is there, is there any particular, you know, when, when you're looking at small business owners, do they seem maybe the most vulnerable in these type like if, if something were to go to the extreme measures and I'm not saying it's getting there but um, you know is that sort of the, the the people that seem to be more vulnerable is the small business owners who maybe rely on on their business as their sole source of income and, and they probably work full-time at that business as well I mean that's that's pretty tough if something were to happen in that situation where you know what happens well it uh, if a business doesn't have a contingency plan mm-hmm. or, or a fund even then unfortunately that doesn't look very good for that business. Um, when we saw the uh, snowmageddon out east, it severely impacted small business in the Maritimes right. because they couldn't open, no, they 
they had stock that would either go bad or inventory that wasn't being purchased and that are that's people's livelihoods mm -hmm. which is also you know so much stress added to an already stressful situation right so i think for us we're really definitely our small business community will be impacted if this spreads um, especially our tourism hospitality um, and experience providers uh, because their business is based off of bringing people here mm -hmm. and, and experiencing or showcasing this area. Um, so the hope is that, you know, Canada's safety and health measures will keep uh, keep the pandemic down and that that shouldn't impact our season this year. Yeah, that's that's the hope. And, and mm -hmm. I think that there's a very good chance that that will be the case. I think I'm trying to think more positively, but being a, a, a guy who's on the radio, sometimes we got to go the other way. Um, but, you know, when, when looking at, uh, at that and, and, you know, um, talking about how people are, are you know, maybe have overstock and can't open. But at the same point, I mean, the opposite could probably be true with this as well, right? When saying, um, you know, there's travel advisories in place all over the place. You can't go anywhere. You Maybe you don't want to go on Amazon and get a package shipped from mm -hmm. who knows where to your house. Mm -hmm. uh, this is an opportunity for people to really go and support local because we know that's not really an issue here in the interior. So, you know, go out and, and, and hang out in, in the Kamloops itself and, and support local business. Absolutely. And that's really what we're talking about too. It, like at the chamber, supporting local is incredibly important. And it's our neighbors that are investing their livelihoods to provide for our community. And so it's a really great opportunity if you aren't already shopping local um, to start doing that in, in the wake of this pandemic. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And, and I know our tourism industry as well is really pushing to say, experience the local stuff because I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who have lived here for a long time and have done a lot of things but they haven't done it all so it's a chance to do that as well absolutely well anything else you want to throw on the table while I have you in here no uh, we're really excited for tonight the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers will also be uh, giving a short presentation about the natural resource uh, sector in our province um, so we're really interested to hear about that but uh, anytime we can get the business community together to talk about our, our future is a really uh, exciting opportunity for me so thanks for having me on and let me talk about it and yeah. uh, just a reminder to people that if they didn't get a ticket they can watch the presentation on the Chamber's Facebook page through live stream. Perfect and uh, he's set to, Ken Kirsten set to begin his State of the City address at 7.30. Yes. Perfect. Well thank you so much really appreciate it and uh, I hope tonight's event goes swimmingly. Thank you. Awesome. That was the Executive Director of the Kamloops Chamber of Commerce, Acacia Pangelinen. Well, coming up next, I'm going to be talking a little bit more about that federal fund, that $1 billion fund that Justin Trudeau announced yesterday to help deal with COVID-19 across the country. I'll be joined by Toronto Star reporter and fellow Kamloopsian Alex Ballingall after this. to Jeff Andreas on Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show. It is March the 12th, and thank you so much for tuning in here today. The coronavirus outbreak. Hopefully, I don't have to be the one to tell you this, but it has been declared a global pandemic by the World Health Organization. That, of course, happened yesterday, and of course, yesterday as well. The federal government rushed out a $1 billion aid package to help fight against the spiraling crisis. I am joined now by a reporter who wrote that story for the Toronto Star. He's a fellow Kamloopsian living in Ottawa, writing for those national political topics. It is Alex Ballingall. Alex, thank you so much for taking the time. No worries. How's it going, Jeff? It's doing all right. It's doing all right. How are things going in Ottawa right now? Are things getting a little crazy down there or what? Extremely busy times. I, I, we've just found out that the Prime Minister himself, the pandemic, has, has hit his own home, where his wife is being tested for the virus, 
and that he has he's canceled this week's first minister's summit it's going to be over the phone now and uh, he is now working from home awaiting whether to hear whether or not his wife has the virus mm-hmm. so it's uh, it's and it's getting uh, it's it's sort of hitting the the top level of political leaders now yeah and and you know this i think goes to show when talking about uh, the fact that his wife did come back just recently from a speaking engagement in the uk uh, i think it speaks to uh, i mean i don't think many people need to be told but uh, travel is maybe not the best thing that you should be doing right now um so you you were out covering the the, the release of this one billion dollar uh, f- uh, fund that was announced by the federal government yesterday. Um, you know, just when you were in that room or when you were looking at that conference, I mean, sort of what was the mood like among those that were there? I mean, when when he's when, when Justin Trudeau's up there talking about the fund itself and when why all these supports are needed, I mean, does it feel like doom and gloom? I think they are really trying to project. Uh, calm and and uh, confidence that while this is a serious situation, um, th- they're trying to project that Canada is well prepared. We have a strong health care system. We have measures put in place uh, in response to the SARS outbreak in 2003, like the creation of the public health agency, um, the chief public health officer uh, sort of guiding the government's response and guiding how we screen for this and what we do. Um, so, so I think that their goal in, in you know, standing up there as sort of this, this contingent of, of top ministers is to project calm and to reassure people that while this is serious, if we all work together to, you know, um, social distance, wash our hands, cough into our elbows, stay at home if we feel sick, then that, that, that we can um, weather the, the storm uh, in the best way possible. I mean, we saw also yesterday, we saw the uh, the address from President Donald Trump, who, um, you know, seems to, you know, his, his message is a lot of uh, bragging about all the stuff that he's done and why the, his response has been so great to date. And, um, you know, and that uh, the U.S. is going to power through this. It's, it feels a little bit different than, than the message that's coming here uh, from our political leaders in Canada. Um, you know, the, a lot more of we're, you know, ready and prepared to deal with this as opposed to bragging about all the things that have been done to date. Uh, just curious, you know, from that perspective, you know, when 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 Trudeau's talking about rolling out these dollars, it's it's really seems like he like you had mentioned. I mean, it's trying to calm the people as opposed to to to, to stir anything up. But when you look at some of the reaction from the opposition, you know, from the conservatives, there seems to still be some some partisan politics being played here. Um, so you know, I'm just curious what you're seeing from kind of the other side of the room as well. I mean, are are you seeing some? Um, some fearful message, fear-mongering being stirred up at all from the opposition in this case, too? Uh, I think the Liberals would say that, 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 that yes, there is. I mean, there's been some talk of, of, uh, of uh, you know, beefing up screening at the borders and, and it, thinking about more travel restrictions, um, which the Liberals, their response to that is, you know, uh, we're following the advice of the public health professionals and, and the, the public health experts and that, you know, if they advised us to do that, we would, but that, that uh, it hasn't got to that point yet in their opinion. I, I know other countries are doing, obviously with Trump last night, uh, sort of a, an extreme measure compared to what, what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that the, the, it's interesting yesterday in question period, like uh, the conservatives uh, have sort of latched on to the economic side of this in a sense that looking at uh, how we've seen the markets tank and tying that 
you know, I guess they're trying to tie that in people's minds to uh, things like the troubled oil and gas industry in Alberta and how, uh, you know, the government has driven up the deficit. And, and so there's, there might not be room for them to stimulate the economy in this, in this seeming uh, period of downturn. Um, so there was a bit of that as well. Yeah, and, and um, you know, the clear message, I think, from, from both sides, too, is, is just talking about how people are going to get through their lives if, if they are, in fact, you know, stuck in quarantine. You know, part of that $500 million, um, you know, half of, half of the $1 billion, at least part of that chunk is to, um, you know, help mitigate any concerns that might come from people having to quarantine themselves um, and, and miss some work. So clearly that's the most important thing for a lot of people right now is what happens if I do feel sick and I can't afford to take a day off work while well, the government's clearly trying to ease those concerns right now um, as well. Uh, you, you know, Alex, you're a reporter, and, and one of the crazy stories that came out yesterday um, was uh, with Rudy Gobert here from the Utah Jazz and what that's done to the NBA. And I just want to ask you this because, you know, I don't know if you've seen the video, but, you know, I think it was a day or, or two days prior to him getting tested positive for the COVID-19 virus yesterday. Uh, you know, he was in a media scrum, and uh, as a joke, he was, you know, when he was going to leave the scrum, he went and actually touched every microphone that was up on the podium. You know, as you, when you're kind of... <laughs> doing these kind of scrums and are in areas with a lot of different people with you don't know where they have been. Do, do you have any concern? I mean, especially as an international, or, or sorry, a national um, reporter, I mean, you don't know necessarily where some of these people are coming from that you are around. Yeah, I mean, I guess, uh, I mean, you're freaking me out. No, no. <laughs> no. Uh, no you do you do have those thoughts. I know, like, going into the, the parliament buildings every day, you know, there's, 338 MPs, there's, you know, multiply that by however many staffers are walking around with them, journalists, um, security personnel, um, visiting dignitaries, people just flowing through, like cafeteria staff. Um, so, you know, you look at the, all the banisters and doorknobs all over that building and you do think that there's a lot of people, you know, coming from all over the country into this mm -hmm. one sort of hot spot. So, so, so I have had some thoughts about, you know, um, if, if uh, yeah, the what if, is, what could happen? Exposure yeah. or something? Yeah, yeah, it does cross your mind. But uh, I mean, at the end of the day, you got to do your job and and follow the advice of uh, you know the healthcare professionals who are saying uh, you know keep your hands clean uh, mm -hmm. and stay at home if you feel sick. And and uh, you, I guess at some level, you just got to trust that and hope for the best. Right on. Uh, what are you working on here today? Today, it's uh, looking at uh, well, I guess this this uh, sort of this bombshell breaking news about the prime minister and then and then also um uh looking at the effect of this on indigenous communities and and their preparedness um you know where where there's already overcrowded housing um a sort of infrastructure right. gaps in terms of health care um so just looking at that perfect well thank you so much for taking the time to come on alex really appreciate it you're always up to some some good work so i'll look forward to reading that next piece as well so thanks so much for coming on really appreciate it and uh yeah speaking to your hometown here of kimlips we love it well, I love it, too. Thanks so much, Jeff. <laughs> right on. That was Alex Ballingall, Toronto Star reporter, based in Ottawa. Of course, he is from right here in Kamloops. All right. Well, coming up next, I'm going to be continuing along with the theme of uh, COVID-19. It's hard, really, now to talk about anything else. I'm going to be joined by the Assistant Professor of International Relations at the University of Victoria. So please stay tuned. We'll have more Jeff Andrea show coming up after this. <laughs> Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. 
Welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show, and thank you so much for tuning in here with me on Thursday, March 12th, and keeping your radios tuned to Radio NL. Of course, uh, the, the topic of, well, really of the month so far is coronavirus, COVID-19. Uh, the news continues to unfold here kind of minute by minute and hour by hour. Uh, yesterday, of course, the World Health Organization declared a pandemic, something that they were reluctant to do for some time, but finally decided to use that terminology here yesterday. And now today, uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced yesterday that $1 billion fund to help combat COVID-19 and, and what's going on here in Canada. Well, today, Prime Minister Trudeau and his wife were now in self-isolation over coronavirus concerns. Uh, his wife uh, had just returned from a speaking engagement in the UK and then began exhibiting flu-like symptoms. So now they are in quarantine, self-isolation, if you will, as those testings unfold. But I wanted to get into a little bit more uh, on kind of what's going on here in Canada and the global response as well. My next guest is the Assistant Professor of International Relations at the University of Victoria, Will Greaves. Will, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for the invitation, Jeff. Okay, so I want to just sort of start by getting into the, the institutional response that we saw. I mean, the WHO yesterday uh, finally called this a pandemic, you know, something they were trying to avoid for quite some time. Yesterday, it finally went about doing so, and there were a number of factors as to why. Um, you know, do you, just, you know, from your point of view as, a, you know, with international relations, do you think that this can make a big difference now in how the world is responding to this crisis? Definitely, definitely. The WHO's decision to declare a pandemic is one of these factors that is leading to, just since yesterday, and will continue to lead to, I think, a more serious response on the part of a lot of different governments to this issue. Having not declared it a pandemic was something that a lot of uh, both individuals and institutions were using as a way of justifying business as usual or normal practices, and that's something that isn't really going to be tenable anymore. Yeah, and, and so, I mean, just there's a lot of countries, I guess, that ne weren't necessarily taking this seriously, and the hope, I guess, is that, you know, calling it a pandemic will, will trigger them to be a little more concerned and a little more cautious and take more protocols to make sure this thing is not spreading within their own borders. Um, you know, is it is it a matter of money, I guess, do you think? Why, like, why are some places so reluctant to, um, you know, I guess, o almost overreact in this kind of a situation? I think there's a couple of different reasons. Uh, they overlap in some ways. Uh, number one is it is about money. I think it's about uh, real fears about what the economic consequences are, are going to be. Already, of course, we have unavoidable costs and you know significant losses, of course, on the on the global stock markets. But if we see a significant uh, you know slowdown of everyday community-based economic activity as uh, major institutions, large employers, schools, and so forth shut down for a period of a number of weeks, uh, I think a lot of policy makers were just really reluctant to to enable that to happen, that they're really concerned about the way in which that's going to produce uh, economic harm in their communities. And maybe from kind of a state of denial, you know, they, they hoped against hope that if they just, uh, you know, kept their heads down, that this might pass them by and it wouldn't be necessary. I think that's now proving to be, you know, uh, unfounded or unrealistic. Um, I think there's other reasons as well, though, why some jurisdictions and some individual uh, political leaders have been reluctant to take stronger action on this. And that has to do with 
I think the broader implications of different kinds of partisan and ideological positions with respect to listening to scientists and listening to the experts on this subject, uh, it's kind of a crack in the door, right? If you concede the fact that you need to listen to the medical and public health experts in order to effectively deal with COVID-19, which, of course, is something I think we, we do need to do and responsible leaders need to accept, um, that really undermines your ability to ignore science and experts in other domains of public policy, which speaks directly to a lot of the contentious political issues that we're currently dealing with. Um, do you ever feel like when, when looking at some of the political responses around the world and how a lot of them seem to, uh, you know, defer basically any responsibility to uh, their, their health officials, places like the World Health Organization, which of course, you know, when it comes to the medical advice is obviously what we want to do and, uh, you know, listen to the people who know exactly what, uh, what they are talking about. But, um, you know, it just feels like sometimes uh, the po political scene uh, almost tries to brush things aside as like, hey, uh, we're, we're not going to deal with this because that's up to the health officials. We're just going to deal with what we can control. And, and you know, you had mentioned here in your last response, like those two things really are connected. But for some, it just seems like there is almost a, a wall or a barrier that they try to put between those two things. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think it comes down to priorities. It comes down to um, broader attitudes towards public policymaking. And we have a, a real reluctance on the part of uh, many politicians to disrupt, as I said before, business as usual. You know, uh, we're living through an age where uh, the highest value that a lot of public policymakers place is on economic growth and economic productivity. And so anything that threatens to damage those economic numbers, anything which um, is viewed as being bad for the economy and therefore bad for individual politicians, electoral re, you know, re-election prospects uh, is something which somewhat irresponsibly some politicians, you know, seek to, to downplay or seek to avoid engaging with uh, in the way that they need to. So when you have a major crisis like this, you know, by definition, it forces politicians under normal circumstances to do things that they wouldn't normally do, that they wouldn't otherwise do. Uh, but we're, you know, in a any period of kind of fragile economic circumstances and uh, very, very divided partisanship, we're seeing some politicians being reluctant to embrace those, you know, tougher, obviously less popular, more expensive types of policies in favor of a kind of head-in-the-sand approach to, to dealing with this crisis. Uh, you know, yesterday, like like I've mentioned numerous times now, the WHO, of course, calling it a pandemic, and then following not too long after that, we saw uh, the federal government here in Canada do their $1 billion fund and, and what was going to be happening with those dollars and how that would help the problem. And then last night, we saw President Donald Trump, of course, give his address, um, you know, talking about what the U.S. is going to be doing. Do you think it, I mean, it's it looks, the timing obviously doesn't look like it's a coincidence. I mean, a pandemic was called, and then all of a sudden, now these political leaders are, are coming in and showing face and, and making sure that they um, have a plan in place or at least have uh, put together some sort of plan that the people are aware that they are announcing. I mean, uh, I, I'm assuming that you would also take it the same way. There's no coincidence that those two things happen in, in such a short time. No, there's definitely no coincidence. You know, the declaration of a WHO pandemic is precisely why Donald Trump had to change his tune 180 degrees practically from just, you know, two days previously. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think it really underscores exactly how untenable his position and his administration's position had become. But if I can kind of develop that point for a second, listening to the president's speech last night really underscores what I'm talking about, though, in terms of the challenge that this situation puts certain types of politicians into. The, the decisions, the policy changes that the U.S. government is now instituting as of last night are not the actual policy changes that public health officials have recommended that 
should be implemented, right? What they've done instead is tried to find a way of making the coronavirus and their response to it compatible with the kinds of things that as an administration they want to do and are already politically motivated to do. So effectively doubling down on a travel ban, on travel restrictions, which this administration has already done for other reasons, now extending that to a 30-day ban on travel between the United States and Europe, but in a way that is completely incoherent from a public uh, health response perspective, right? Having an exemption for the United Kingdom and Ireland where people can catch connecting flights from the European mainland to the United States through the UK. I mean, you're not effectively going to be addressing the transmission of the virus by instituting this travel ban. And even if that was effective, which it simply won't be, it doesn't address, and the president's speech last night pretty much failed to address categorically the fact of transmissions now happening within the United States, because of course the virus is already there. It's not a question of building a wall and keeping it out of the USA. That was never an option, and even if it had been, it's much, much too late. So the president and his administration are working very hard not to engage with the realities of what public health officials are telling them is necessary to address the spread of the of coronavirus in the United States itself. And so they're doing that you know, in defiance of scientific expertise. And they're, they're doing that in a way that tries to maintain the integrity of their political project, um, but which is a political project, which is completely you know inappropriate for these current circumstances. Yeah. And with that all being said, you know, the, the U.S., I feel like has to be the biggest threat to uh, what could potentially happen here in Canada. I mean, we're lucky enough. We don't have uh, too many cases. Only 101 was the last number I've heard. It might have gone up uh, since the last time I read a number because that number seems to just tick up slowly uh, every single day and every single hour. But, you know, uh, pretty minimal in Canada at this point in time. But, you know, that, that's got to be the biggest concern is uh, people traveling across the border and, and people living near border cities. I mean, the, these are the places that I would think would pose the biggest risk to us here in Canada. And, um, you know, with the U.S. not really taking those steps to address the problem within its own borders, um, you know, that, that's got to be the biggest worry for us here in, in you know, as, as a country that's just north of the United States. You know, certainly uh, an increase in infections in the U.S. almost certainly foretells a growth in in infections in Canada as well, right? We're too closely integrated. People travel across the border. Uh, Economic health on both sides of the Canada-U.S. border requires, you know, people to go back and forth. Um, So, you know, I think we're in a similar position to the United States in the sense of uh, being fairly early on in our own respective, you know, epidemics, and we're going to see uh, infection rates increase as we see the number of tests being administered increasing as well. So, uh, you know, the number of confirmed cases, the hundred and some in Canada, is is frankly, you know, the tip of the iceberg. There are almost certainly far, far more as yet undiagnosed cases in Canada. Um, and that, of course, is the problem, right? People who don't realize that they're infected and are, are perhaps not exhibiting major physical symptoms, are feeling well themselves. People who are going to be fine, you know, their own health is going to be fine, but they're transmitting the virus and they're mm-hmm. spreading it through their communities and they don't realize that they're doing it. And that's, you know, that's the kind of exact point where the WHO's advice and you know the government of Canada's advice to just wash your hands frequently comes right in because if everybody is doing that regardless of whether or not they feel like they might be sick, you're going to help stop the transmission. Um, but there's, or I should say, probably you're going to help slow the rate of transmission since uh, it seems pretty clear at this point um, that it can't be stopped, right? And we're going to see. Um, this rolling wave of infections across the population, uh, and that that's 
the question is how quickly is that rate of infection going to increase uh, because how quickly it increases is really what's going to determine how well the public health system is able to keep up with it. And so slowing the rate of transmission, these measures around washing hands, social distancing, etc. that we've been hearing about are, are not intended to stop the epidemic. They're, they're intended to slow its spread in a way that will allow public health authorities and medical authorities to cope. Yeah, and we heard uh, health, Federal Health Minister Patty Hyder yesterday saying this could affect between 30 and 70 percent of the Canadian population by the time it's all said and done. So, uh, you, uh, yeah, we're just at the, the, the beginning here, I think. Uh, just want to ask you, too, will they have you here, Will? I mean, you're, you're obviously with the University of Victoria. Um, you know, you being a professor, how, how has this uh, in, impacted you so far? I mean, has it had a significant impact yet? Or, or uh, you know, just what, what, what has COVID-19 done to your, your job so far at this point? So far, the uh, effects have been relatively minor, but just since yesterday, we've we've kind of seen a significant uh, increase. So, obviously, until yesterday, there were no confirmed cases uh, of, of COVID-19 on Vancouver Island. Uh, there's now been confirmation that we have at least one case on the island, which means uh, it seems likely that it's going to spread through the broader, you know, the broader community now. Um, but up until now, you know, our classes haven't been affected. The University of Victoria, where I work, is still open. Uh, there have been some very, you know, modest uh, uh, changes on campus around, as I said, hand washing, but things like um, reusable mugs in the cafeteria are no longer allowed and so forth. You know, very modest attempts to try to, to limit the spread of the virus uh, within the university community. I think, uh, you know, speaking for myself, but I imagine for many of my colleagues as well, we've been hopeful that if the rate of uh, transmission was low enough or, or was slow enough to get to the island, that we might be able to get uh, close to the end of this current semester, which has around three weeks remaining uh, without significant disruption. We'll see whether or not that happens. We'll see whether or not we have uh, cases that are directly related to the student body or otherwise related to the, the campus community, in which case we would probably see campus being closed and having to, to shift the remainder of our teaching online um, just to round out the last couple of weeks of the semester. In addition to that, though, um, you know, within my, my job, in a broader sense, as a, as a professor and as a researcher, we are seeing some pretty significant consequences. Uh, springtime is a major season for academic conferences and academic events where people gather to share their research and to connect with their colleagues. Uh, and we've seen just a, a cascade, a wave of those events being canceled in the last several days. So um, those are responsible choices to make. You know, I think it's a good thing, ultimately, that these large gatherings of uh, hundreds or thousands of, of academics are not are not gathering under these circumstances. But uh, there's a very real effect that that will have on many people's work and on our professional activities uh, and a really uh, significant financial hardship that those cancellations are going to impose on many organizations and professional, you know, academic uh, associations and so forth as well. So uh, we are still early days on this, but we're already going to see uh, some significant effects. And if we see any um, outbreak or any uh, you know, positive diagnoses uh, within the university community itself, I think we would see uh, probably quite a, a rapid uh, transition away from on-campus-based activities towards uh, off, you know, offline, I should say online, in-person, uh, not in-person mm -hmm. uh, types of uh, teaching and learning. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, well, well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and, and speak to me today. I really appreciate it. I think you got some great insight here. And um, yeah, I just uh, enjoyed our chat. So thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it.
My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Awesome. That was Will Greaves, Assistant Professor of International Relations at the University of Victoria, talking about the uh, just the political and institutional responses here to the coronavirus and COVID-19 and just what has gone on globally here over the last little while. And, and of course, you know, we're just kind of watching and waiting and learning as things go and things progress here. Um, you know, people are making decisions, uh, you know, basically at the seat of their pants uh, on a lot of these cases. You know, you're just kind of reacting to the, the news as it comes down. So, I mean, this, this show right here is on it, uh, you know, in the morning here. It's 9.52 right now as I'm speaking, and this show does get replayed later in the evening. So, uh, you know, if you're listening here to the, to the replay, I mean, things could have changed drastically over the course of that time. So it's just something to always keep in mind and always remember that this situation um, is, 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 is always moving and always changing. So make sure you keep your phones handy and, and keep up with the latest news because uh, who knows when it's going to hit a little bit closer to home. Thankfully, right now, we here in Canada, we here in BC, and specifically us here in the interior, Things look pretty good right now, so I'm not too worried, but at the same point, it's definitely some news that we got to keep an eye on. All right, well, let's take a quick break, and we'll be back with more Jeff Andrea Show after this, so please stick around. The voice of your community, Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Here's Jeff Andreas. Welcome back to the Jeff Andrea Show here on Radio NL. It is Thursday, March 12th, and it has been an interesting week so far, to say the least. Of course, the headlines are dominated by one thing and one thing only, and it makes perfect sense to me, given how serious the international health authorities are now taking this. So uh, the WHO, of course, yesterday declared the COVID-19 outbreak as a pandemic. Pandemic is not a word to use lightly or carelessly. It's a word that, if misused, can cause unreasonable fear or unjustified acceptance that the fight is over. Yeah, so, I mean, the WHO there clearly, you know, was reluctant to call this thing a pandemic for some time, but finally decided yesterday that it is time to make that call and to really just up the alerts of many countries who maybe weren't taking this as seriously as they should. Yesterday, German Chancellor Angela Merkel cited expert estimates that up to 70% of her country's citizens could be infected by the coronavirus. And then yesterday, also here in Canada, Health Minister Patty Haidu sort of echoed those statements, saying that between 30 and 70% of Canadians could become infected with this new coronavirus, but that number will depend on the scope and scale of the response to combat transition. So the, the, the government's doing what it can and saying what it can. Of course, it is up to our health officials to, to do what it can to prevent this spread. And, you know, we're getting these daily updates from, uh, you know, our health officials here in B.C. And, you know, it gives us a clear indication that it is taking the situation seriously, but at the same point in time, we here in Canada are fairly safe. We're one of the lowest concerned countries at this point in time. Just over 100 cases have been reported so far, um, and we had the one death, of course, that was an 80, a person in their 80s uh, in northern Vancouver. So, you know, minimal impact compared to many other places in the country. Just look at Italy and, and say we're not doing all, all that bad. Um, now... The money yesterday was announced by the Liberals, $1 billion, a $1 billion fund to help combat this. Um, it will be spent on, you know, purchasing medical supplies for frontline workers, research towards a vaccine for the virus, bolstering provincial and territorial health care responses. Um, you know, and this, of course, all is on the back of the WHO declaring this a pandemic, which does suggest, um, you know, that that cause that call by the WHO really did trigger a lot of people to take this thing a little bit more seriously. 
One sector that I always think can be used as a barometer for just how bad a situation is becoming is sports. You know, we're seeing major sporting events just just really getting canceled or postponed, and that's something that really doesn't happen on a very regular basis. Now, um, you know, the NBA last night postponing its regular season for now um, in, 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 until further notice. That decision was announced after a Utah Jazz player tested positive for the novel coronavirus only hours after the majority of the league's owners were leaning towards playing games without fans in the arenas. So then that kind of changed everything. And that player in question was Utah Jazz center Rudy Gobert. And that news that he had tested positive came not too long after he was caught on camera joking about the virus and touching all of the microphones at a recent press conference. So clearly some serious stuff. Um, looking at hockey, I mean, top leagues in Germany, Austria, Poland, Norway, Slovakia have all halted play. Czech leagues will go on without spectators. The Women's World Hockey Championships canceled. The NHL is set to update us at some point today about its plans. No World Figure Skating Championships. The ATP announced the tennis season was suspended for six weeks. Major League Soccer will collect its halting operations. I mean, there's a lot that is going on, and clearly uh, the sporting world is taking it seriously, and that's an indication that uh, you know th there is some concern that this thing is going to spread quicker than we anticipate if we do, in fact, not heed those mornings to avoid those large gatherings so we'll see where things go this uh this is not an issue that is going away anytime soon we're going to continue to talk about it and um you know i'm going to drive myself crazy talking about it myself but that's what i'm here to do on that note it's about time to end things up so i would like to thank all my guests for joining me and of course a big thank you to all of you for listening and remember whether you join me for a short while or a long while just know i enjoyed our time while it lasted i'll be back here tomorrow on friday at nine